Hello and welcome to From Balloons to Drones, the official podcast of BalloonsToDrones.com, where we explore the development of military air power from the earliest days of flight to today. I'm your host, Mike Hankins. And I'm your host, Brian Lastly. Well, Brian, I thought we'd try something a little different today. Usually we bring on a guest, we talk about a book, uh, we do a deep dive on history, but I wanted to take some time to do a couple things. One of the things we try to do with this show uh, is help connect scholarship to the public in a, in a way that's hopefully engaging. Um, and it strikes me that we haven't really talked about ourselves all that much and what we do and kind of what the historian's life is like. So I wanted to take today and uh, play a little game with you. Are you up for that? I'm ready. All right. Because podcasts need dumb bits, uh, we're going to call this check six. We've got six questions. Uh, I've come up with three questions. You've come up with three questions that we're going to ask each other and kind of uh, grill each other here and see what we can talk about. Uh, related to our job as historians, what we do, and the subject of air power history and what we think. So no holds barred. We're going to let it all out here. I'm ready. You you can ask me anything. Okay. Be careful what you wish for. Well, the first question I had for you is, you know, you've written a biography. Um, you've done a little bit of work in, in that genre of biography. Uh, and something we've talked about a lot is the various kind of air power leaders over the years and how much attention they have or haven't gotten from people. So my first question for you is, who do you think is most in need of a good scholarly biography? So my answer to that would be uh, Benjamin Fuloy. And for those who are not familiar with uh, Benjamin Fuloy, he was Billy Mitchell's uh Kind of counterpart is probably the the best way to look at it. Uh, he is coming up through the Army Air Corps at the exact same time. Uh, he has extensive dealings with uh, the the really early aviators, uh, Frank Lamb, um, Selfridge. Uh, so he's he's kind of there from the beginning, but he's not as, for lack of a better term, he's not as loudmouth uh, as Billy Mitchell <laughs> was. So he's well, not. Who is? Yeah, exactly. He's not he's not trying to get his name in the paper. Uh he's not trying to get in front of Congress. He's just trying to to do his job, right? Mm-hmm. Um and he did write an autobiography that that's called From the Wright Brothers to Astronauts or something like that. Uh, I've got it on my shelf at the office. And so he kind of covers this whole period literally from from the inception of air power uh until we travel around the moon. Uh, and it's a great it's a great autobiography, uh, and you can clearly see his his disdain for Mitchell uh, in the pages of this book. Uh, but he has no he has no biography, right? He has no one has has sat down and examined him from uh, from a scholarly uh, perspective. And so uh, I know all of his papers are here at the Air Force Academy, uh, so they are they are just sitting there waiting. Uh, for someone to come in and mine them uh, and and write a biography, uh, so Fuloy is is the easy button answer. But I'd also add that there are probably a dozen other um, air power uh, air power pioneers who don't have uh, a biography on them. So Mason Patrick has one. It's it's a it's a little dated, um, but you've got you've got Westover. Uh, you've got Lawrence Norstad from, from the World War II and Cold War era. Um, you know, someone told me he was Arnold's hatchet man. Um, and so he would be a great one. And so there, there are all of these, um, 
uh, all of these air power pioneers that are that are kind of outside uh, the holy trinity of uh, Mitchell, Arnold, and LeMay, uh, who who really deserve a um, uh, their own biography. You know who I always think of too. I don't know what you think of this, but uh, Generals Dixon and Creech. Um, who are really important for making significant changes to tactical air command in the 70s and 80s. There is a short book on Creech called Creech Blue that's not bad. Um, but I think a more in-depth biography of either or both of them would be great. What, do, what would you think of that? Yeah, no, um, for both of them, I, th- I think that's great, especially Dixon. Uh, I'd run across several sources in, in my own research that called Dixon the Tidewater Alligator. Uh, cause apparently he was, he was rather irascible. Uh, and again, this is, this is the late seventies and early eighties where you, you could get away with this kind of stuff as a general officer. Uh, and I, yeah, I guess this is a kid friendly show, so I, I won't, uh, say the full quote, but there's a, a great quote from someone where Dixon was, was chewing out a, chewing out a one star. And he said, you were a lot blanking smarter when you were a Colonel. Uh, <laughs> wow. And then Creech is another another great one. Uh, yeah, you mentioned the, the Creech Blue biography. Uh, and for anyone in the Air Force, they're familiar with the color Creech Brown, right? All Air Force buildings at every Air Force base, including the back of stop signs, are painted with <laughs> this, this brown color. Because Creech, for whatever reason, did not like all of the different, he, he wanted everything to look uniform. So he came up with the idea of painting them this, this particular color of brown and air combat command actually had uh, the paint swatches uh, of the original choices for, for Creech Brown. So I have seen the original uh, Sherman funny. and Williams paint swatches for Creech Brown, but um, <laughs> yeah. So you, you got anyone else on, on that list? That's my short list um, for sure. I'd have to think about it to go. Okay, so then let me let me throw one uh, back at you then. So he, here's my first question. So what what were the most influential books for you coming up through uh, your master's and your PhD works? What were, you know, let's say the the two or three seminal works that, that you kind of put on a higher pedestal than everything else? Well, this will be a little bit of a surprise when you when you think about books that really had a strong influence on me early on in my kind of scholarly studies um a lot of people were surprised i think to find in my book about the f15 and f16 one of the quotes i put at the beginning was about ancient rome and greco-roman warfare uh and that's because i was very influenced by this book called soldiers and ghosts a history of battle and classical antiquity it's by j e linden um, and I took, when I first started grad school, I had this idea that I wanted to be like the historian of the Roman Republic and kind of warfare and like that Julius Caesar time period. Um, I was really interested in that. And so I took a few classes on it, obviously ended up not staying in that lane, but, um, this one particular book that we got assigned really stuck with me. And the reason is he kind of goes through a lot of famous battles in both for Greece and Rome in that, that ancient period and talks about how the idea of like older, more mythological warfare was like impacting how they were actually doing battles. And that there's this kind of memory aspect to how people were conceiving of tactics and and strategy. 
Um, and he, he makes a really convincing case. It sounds like kind of a wild idea, uh, but read through the book. He, he, he makes a really strong case um, for how people of the time were thinking about ancient battle and how that influenced them. And I, I kept seeing that idea pop up again when I was reading later books on the F-16 and stuff about this, people kind of calling back to an earlier time. And so that book always stayed with me. And it's something I think about a lot, like in what ways does our idea of the past or our idealization of the past kind of influence us? I think that happens in military spheres, but also happens to all of us in our daily lives. You know, I, I do that all the time. Like I make decisions based on kind of idealized personal history as well. I think a lot of us do that. Um, so I thought it was an interesting book for that reason that really got me thinking. And then, so that was a huge influence on me, probably one of the bigger ones. Um, Jill Lepore has a book called The Name of War, I think is the title of it. It's about King Philip's War. Again, has nothing to do with airplanes, um, but the way that she talks in there also about, she's more talking about language and the way that people talk about warfare affects how they think about it and how they strategize and what warfare means to people culturally and how it can shape societies after the fact. That book also really stuck with me. Um, some people really like Jillipur. Some people really don't. I, I understand that, uh, you know, she's not for everyone, but that particular book uh, really uh, lasted for me. Um, that has nothing to do with airplanes, but it, it was reading through um, Grant Hammond's book on Boyd um, that got me more thinking in that kind of air power direction. And, and Claude Felter, of course. Uh, Claude Felter's The Limits of Air Power is something I still reference really frequently. Yeah, it's really interesting that you you mention um, Jill's Name of War book. Uh, mm -hmm. It's upstairs on, on my shelf, too. Uh, and it's actually with my kind of my Way of War series. So uh, Wigley's The American Way of War. Uh, but then we've also got The Skulking Way of War, uh, yeah. The First Way of War, The Name of War. Uh, and yeah, so all of those and how we think about conflict were uh, were influential to to me as well. Yeah, for sure. Those are all all great works. All right. I've got an, another question for you. I'm standing by. Thinking about your research uh, and all the different books you've researched. You spend a lot of time in archives. Uh, you've got a great archive there where you're working at the Air Force Academy. Um, so my question for you is, what do you think is the most interesting thing that you've found in an archive? Oh, that's that's so easy. And I, I can't... <laughs> You didn't set this up. I, I don't think I've told you this story, have I? I don't think so. I have no idea what you're about to say. Okay, so we're going to go all the way back to grad school, and we're going to go back to uh, my very first, one of my very first classes where they're, they're actually teaching us how to do original, original source research. Uh, and so this was Dave Stone, uh, Soviet and Russian historian, uh, great, great historian. Uh, but we were out at the Eisenhower Library, which was, you know, 45 minutes down the road at Kansas State. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, I was figuring out how to be a historian for the first time. And as I'm going through Eisenhower's post-presidency correspondence uh, when he's up in Pennsylvania, uh, and I come across a letter from Walt Disney to Ike. Wow. and the letter says something along the lines of, you know, I am, I am enclosing a copy of, of your book crusade in Europe, you know, please sign this for me. 
And what really struck me was that Walt said, I want my daughters to know uh, that I, I knew, I knew people or I knew famous people or, you know, that, that essentially I, I, I was connected. Like people would know who I am. Right. And it was, it was actually written in a, in a very humble way, but I thought it was amazing that, that here's Walt who, who's already known globally. Right. I mean, he, he's been known worldwide since, since the late twenties, uh, but writing to Eisenhower, uh, essentially asking for his autograph. And I will also state that that is the one and only time that I ever gave serious consideration uh, to to putting something in my bag and and, and walking out with it. <laughs> uh, now I have to also uh, note to our listeners who who may not be familiar with this: this was was in the in the early two thousands, right? So this is is in the age of of stuff has already walked out of the National Archives. And they're already a little on edge about this. And so typically when when you research or, or or would research in a presidential library, they're watching you. You're set at a table and there's someone kind of across from you in the room with you uh, so that they've always got eyes on you. Right. Uh, and they will even go so far as to go through your bag. Uh, at the end of the day, to see that that what you're taking out of there is only copies or or, or something like that. So, um, so I joke that 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 was the only time I, I gave serious consideration to it, and it was the only time, the only day I, I ever researched where they actually didn't check my bag. Um, <laughs> I I could have done it if anyone from the Eisenhower Library listens to this. They're never going to let me back in there again. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Okay. So I'll, I'll throw one back at you. So you asked me who deserves a biography, what air power leaders deserve a biography. So let me ask kind of a similar question in, in a different way. What aircraft mm-hmm. or, or, or multiple aircraft uh, is there not enough about? Now, look, we, we have both written uh, a metric ton on the F-16 uh, and F-15. Uh, mm-hmm. We both focused extensively on the the post Vietnam War era, uh, but but what aircraft has been overlooked, or there should be more about it out there? That is a really good question. I'll have to think about that. Well, I'll say that I am biased in this answer towards the kind of time period that I tend to focus on, which is post World War II. So there's probably a better answer that involves some of the really early World War I aircraft or kind of civilian aircraft of that era, or maybe something from the interwar period or the war itself. I'm sure, you know, a lot of that stuff has gotten a lot of attention, but, you know, there's, there's probably something in there that I'm not thinking of. So when I do think about the post-World War II time period, there's a few things that come to mind. I'll say, I'll say three kind of topics here. One is, I think cargo aircraft generally have not been talked about really much at all. I mean, there's there's a few books here and there about airlift operations and things. Um, but something that I think is interesting that we don't talk about enough is humanitarian airlift missions, particularly in the United States Air Force. Um, and the Navy participates often in those. And it's one of the most common things that the services do. I mean, a lot of people don't realize this, but the Department of Defense does a ridiculous amount of humanitarian airlift in support of disaster relief, uh, in support of scientific missions, 
Uh, and all those involve, you know, these huge cargo aircraft. It's maybe C-130s, maybe C-17s, something like that. Um, C-5s in some cases. Um, those aircraft have not gotten anywhere near the scholarly attention as the fighters or the bombers. And because they make up such a huge core of what the Air Force does and what the DOD does in the United States, I think they deserve a lot of attention. Um, you could say the same thing for tankers. Uh, tankers don't get anywhere near the amount of attention that they should. And they are what enables the Air Force to do what it does. Uh, and the Navy also. So, I mean, yeah, those those are all worth talking about uh, in some degree. But the the third answer I'll say, and this is a broad category as well. Every time I think about stuff, to topics that we don't have enough about in air power, I think of the 1950s uh, kind of generally in that century series of fighters. Now, there's a few of them that have gotten a lot of attention. The F-104 has got a lot of good material out there. Um, F-105, if you count the F-4 as being part of that, which it kind of is. Um, but there's this crazy period of the 1950s where designers are throwing everything at the wall and seeing what sticks. And there's so many wacky ideas out there that don't end up going to production. Um, you know, the F-107 and 108 are, are so wild. Um, and there's there's all kinds of other concepts in there. So I think a kind of conceptual history of what is what are all the different designs on the drawing board what's moving forward what's not moving forward and why and what are some of the crazy ideas that were tried or thought of um throughout that century series of fighter development i think would be a really interesting book again there's it's not untouched there's some material out there about it but it, it'd be cool i think that, that'd make a really cool dissertation or or a book if somebody wants to do that yeah, there's a I've mentioned before that there's an alternate universe where the B70 and yeah. the F108 go into full production. Yeah. Uh, those yeah, become yeah. the backbone of of the bomber and the fighter fleet. Absolutely. Uh, it, it's funny you mentioned the the Century series, you know, and there there are so many aircraft, the 100, the 101, the 102, mm -hmm. uh the 106, but the one that always kind of jumps out at me is is the 105. Yeah. And there are some Vietnam era guys. There, there's some books, some memoirs about flying the uh the Thud in in Vietnam and there's some very famous guys that 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 flew the F105 uh during the Vietnam conflict, but it seems to me that the F4 typically gets gets the lion's share of attention right. uh from from books and documentaries and I think it's the same thing in World War II for whatever reason the B17 has latched onto the the cultural memory of mm -hmm. of strategic bombardment and the the poor B24 always always gets left behind and I, I don't know yeah. I don't know if it's the way the aircraft look I don't know if it's uh if it's something else but you know what you know I'd written down here F105 versus F4 and B24 versus B17 uh mm -hmm. for what that for what that's worth Yeah and there's a B26 is somewhere in there um, yeah, this, this is fantastic. I mean, there's no shortage of material uh, for people that want to dive into these kind of topics. All right, I got another question for you. Um, both of us do a lot of oral history interviews, and I think we've benefited a lot from oral history interviews. You know, the Air Force has a great program where it does extensive amounts of oral history interviews, and you have a lot of them there in your archive. Um, we've both used them a lot. 
Uh, but if you could interview, if you could go back in time and interview any non-living historical figure, who would that be? Yeah, that's, you know, the the names that immediately jump to mind are well outside of, you know, my, my period of interest, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so obviously the, the names, you know, Washington and Grant uh, mm-hmm. come to mind. Uh, Pershing comes to mind. Mm-hmm. But I guess if if I want to stick to uh, stick to my my guns here, um, I, I'll, I'll give you two names. And so the the first name would obviously be Cuter. Uh, uh-huh. Having having Lawrence gone Cuter. through yeah. yeah Lawrence Cuter, uh, having gone through his files extensively, and I think I had a pretty good measure of the person in the biography. But I would really be interested in him telling me, you got this wrong, you interpreted this wrong, you never mm-hmm. you never mentioned this, which is what I was really thinking about mm-hmm. uh, at the time. Uh, so it would it would be good to have that. the The other person, I think would probably be Carl Spatz or Spots, oh, yeah. depending on 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 how you want to uh, uh, pronounce it. And I think that's because I, I would really like the interpretation on, on what he thought about strategic bombardment in World War II, what he thought was working, what wasn't working, uh, but also as you know, the first chief of staff of the Air Force. Uh, mm-hmm. So I, I think interview being the ability to go back and interview spots and there are oral histories from him that I, that I've gone through. Uh, but to go back and be able to, uh, interview him and ask him questions, uh, about what was going on in world war two and the establishment of the United States air force. I mean, down to the, where did you agree with Hap Arnold and where did you not agree with Hap Arnold? Uh, yeah. both for the, the second world war and, uh, the, the post-war period. Uh, so yeah, I, I've, I've got to go with, with, with cuter and spats. What, what about yourself? It's a hard question. Um, and there, because there are so many good oral histories out there for some of the figures that we're interested in, we can rely on that. So the people that come to mind most for me are more on the contractor side. You know, I'm very interested in aircraft design, technology development, that kind of stuff, even more so than the operational piece, um, most of the time. So I would love to talk to somebody like Kelly Johnson uh, or Ben Rich or somebody like that who was, you know, running the Skunk Works, running Lockheed uh, during some of their most innovative times, you know, designing, you know, Kelly Johnson's working on design for, you know, all kinds of aircraft from the P-38 Lightning up to the SR-71 Blackbird. It's like that that's a huge range of design considerations and all the stuff that was on the drawing board that that they didn't get into production. Uh, it'd be fascinating to hear what he thinks. I mean, he's, there's material out there. He has a memoir. Uh, both of them actually have memoirs. Uh, but I'd love to be able to kind of sit down and, and press them on a few points, particularly, you know, there's a few things they say in their memoirs. I'd be like, oh, I'd really like to have some follow-up questions for you about this. Uh, so that's that's my answer. You know, I, I, wanna, I want an alibi. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I want to redo. I, I think uh, Alexander Seversky uh, oh. would, would be another one. Uh, and to mm-hmm. go back and, and discuss the, 
uh, the Saversky Arnold rivalry. Uh, mm-hmm. Saversky getting kicked out of of Saversky Aircraft Corporation. Uh, some of the stuff that he was working on, uh, and then the stuff that they had on the drawing board, which included things like the P forty seven, but also Saversky's relationship with with Cuter and Hal George. Uh, there, there are a lot of kind of myths out there about who saw victory through air power and when they saw it and how they they saw it. Uh, th- that I would I would very much like to uh, clear up, and so that that serves both. Uh, we get some aircraft industry questions. Uh, we could get some behind the scenes of World War II. Uh, and there's also the Disney connection for me as well. So uh, Saversky would definitely be up there for me. I'm surprised you didn't just say Walt Disney. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, when when Walt when Walt died in 1965, there's actually an article in uh, the Air Force Historical Magazine called Walt Disney an airman at his heart. Uh, wow. And it, it went through all the ways that Walt had um, had moved forward the idea of air power through through the movie Victory Through Air Power, uh, but then also space power uh, and his work in the 1950s on man in space and man on the moon. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, I, I always I always consider Walt kind of a, uh, an airman in, in his own heart, too. That's cool. Yeah, so I guess it's it's back over to me for uh, for the final question of our session here, uh, and, and we'll do we'll do a little bit of a of a softball one to to close us out here. <laughs> so you get a chance to ride in 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 one aircraft, all right? Oh. And you, you're going to have an expert, someone who flew it, who knew it intimately. Uh, you know, maybe the designer is going to be there. You know, you're going to get an entire day just around this, this one aircraft. Um, and who, what aircraft would you pick? But it can't be the F4. Okay. Cause I know that was, I knew that was going to be your answer. So you, it might not have been, I mean, it's on the list, but I don't know if it would be my top pick. It, I mean, it'd be cool. I wouldn't turn down a ride in an F4. Um, I might pick an F-16. Uh, there's something about it's it's got that hot rod quality. You know, it's it's smaller, it's agile, it can do loops. It's probably going to make me throw up everywhere. <laughs> I've I've thought about this a lot. So there's a there's an incident in the 70s where um, I think I wrote about this uh, in the book. But uh, Jim Fallows, who's the journalist at um, the Atlantic, very critical of the F-15. And so the Air Force decided to give him a ride in an F-15 to see if that would change his mind. And he spent the whole time vomiting in the backseat of an F-15. <laughs> and he writes about it very honestly, which is funny. Uh, so I might have a similar <laughs> experience if I were to ride in any of these planes. Uh, but yeah, I think I'd pick an F-16. That that sounds like the coolest experience to me. Yeah, I would I would go a little bit uh, a little bit before that. Uh, I think uh, a spad uh, thirteen. Uh, I want to oh, go, yeah. go all the way back to the beginning. Open uh, cockpit. Yeah, I mean the, yeah. the 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 real deal twin machine gun, uh, mm-hmm. interrupter gear. Uh, but the the great one of the great aircraft of the first world war, made famous by Luffberry and Rickenbacker. Yeah, my my answer would be uh, an original spad thirteen. You know, it's probably a lot easier to get a ride in a SPAD than in an F-16. Yeah, yeah, there there are organizations 
mm-hmm. that have rebuilt in 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 fly uh spads and fockers and in mm-hmm. um sop with camels and all, all that kind of stuff so yeah spad or a newport newport would be cool too newport would be awesome yeah any of those that would be great i didn't even think about that type of very different flight experience uh yeah just having that oil spray in your face and yeah. you're flying around yeah yeah that'd be great yeah ten 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 thousand feet open cockpit uh <laughs> You know, the, the movies don't do it justice for what those guys had to wear. Uh, yeah. The, the very, very heavy, sheepskin uh, mm-hmm. woolen um, pants and boots. And, uh, you know, they, they, they weren't up there, you know, scarves flying in the wind. Uh, that was it was it's probably actually very miserable work to if you think about it. Yeah, I, I can't imagine what that must have felt like. Um, but yeah, completely different experience. Um, absolutely. Great answers. Great answers. Well, that's about all the time we have. I hope this was fun. This was fun for us. Um, next, next month we'll be back, uh, with another author. We'll be talking about books again, but maybe we'll do something like this again. Um, seems kind of fun. Yeah. Reach out to us. Let us know what you think about the episode. Uh, so where are you online, Brian? Are you still on the social media? Uh, you know, I would I would say I'm on Twitter, but I don't even know if it's Twitter anymore. I think it's X now. I'm I'm yeah. completely confused uh, as, as to what's what's going on, and I'm I'm not leaving I'm not leaving the site. Like I am, uh, I'm one of the the last officers on the Titanic. I'm I'm not getting a live <laughs> boat. I'm going down with the ship, and I'm also not moving to another social media if it if it does go away. So uh, <laughs> you, you can find me currently on Twitter. Uh, and you can also find me at brianlastly.com. Uh, Mike, how about yourself? I have abandoned the social media ship, uh, but I'm still online at mwhankins.com. Uh, you can find me there. I do make regular updates there, including the fact that uh, Flying Camelot, my book, is now available in audiobook for the first time. So if you want to listen to it, you can do that. Find a link there at nwhankins.com. All of us are online at balloons2drones.com. Our music was created by Jason Davis at Digital Fish Media, which is on Facebook at digitalfishmedia.org. Please send us an email to balloons2drones.com slash contact to either talk to us or submit an article for publication. Thank you all, and we'll see you next time.